Welcome to Experience This, the podcast that celebrates remarkable customer experiences and inspires you to stand out from the competition by wowing your customers. Each episode, we bring you a healthy dose of inspiring stories, funny interactions, and practical takeaways. Marketing and customer experience thought leader, Dan Gingas. Shares the mic with customer retention and employee experience expert, Joey Coleman, helping you to get people talking about your business. So get ready, because it's time to experience this. Get ready for another episode of the Experience This Show. Join us as we discuss the improving experience of virtual reality, the evolving schedule of sharing content, and a simple way to add time to your day. Revisiting, revising, and refining. Oh my! Sometimes a remarkable experience deserves deeper investigation. We dive into the nitty gritty of customer interactions and dissect how and why they happen. Join us while we're dissecting the experience. We spoke way, way, way back in season one about the future of virtual reality. Clearly, clearly you are referring to episode 31 back in season one. We're all the way at season nine, episode 155 now. Yeah, it's been a minute, as the kids say. But I had an experience the other day that made me want to revisit that conversation from so many years ago. I attended my first event in virtual reality. Ooh, the event biz has moved to virtual reality. I cannot wait to hear about this. Yeah, so this was an interesting one. Uh, It was pretty fascinating. And a lot of the credit goes to the joint hosts of the event, who are both very good friends of mine, John Bowen of CEG Worldwide and Jason Gaynard of MMT. Now, the event was for members of the MMT community that Jason hosts, a group of entrepreneurs from all over the world, which I am thrilled to be a part of. We had people participating from North America as well as Australia, Europe, and Africa. And normally, this group meets for an annual in-person event. But due to COVID, we haven't had the chance to gather all in person for over two years. John Bowen was our guide along with his team at CG Worldwide and a team from M2 Studios that was led by their CEO, Michael Potts. M2 Studios specializes in making the virtual spaces that businesses can use in these type of uh, events and engagements. And we visited a couple of the rooms they designed. Now, this is where it starts to get really interesting. We started our virtual reality experience on Mars. <laughs> of course you did. Mars? Mars, exactly. The design team had used imagery from NASA to accurately map the landscape. And they built a futuristic room with a large balcony where you could step outside, in virtual reality, mind you, and gaze out over the red Martian expanse. And after we got all oriented to operating in this virtual space and talking a little bit about how VR works and kind of how we could do things, we transported to a series of other rooms, including an art gallery filled with 
NFTs and an infinity pool in the middle. Wait, and did you just say NFTs? I did say NFTs. You know, I it's it's not a conversation I think amongst entrepreneurs this day if you're not referring to NFTs, isn't it? Right. Wait, so which it was, for our listeners that are saying, "What the heck are those?" They're non-fungible tokens. And man, I can maybe explain this for about five seconds longer, but they're basically digital collectibles. Exactly. Um, why anybody collects them, I don't have any idea whatsoever, but people actually pay money for them. Yeah. So it's basically think of it as digital art. You've probably heard a lot. Digital art is one version of an NFT. And so basically, we were able to kind of walk through this gallery in a, you know, beautiful, room in a forested mountain landscape and kind of see these different things hanging on the wall. We then transported to a penthouse apartment in Dubai. We then went to an Italian villa with a pool. What can I say? There was another pool. Pools are kind of cool in VR, so a lot of spaces use them. And finally, we went to kind of a more traditional boardroom environment. Now, I got to ask here, are you using a special device to experience this? We are. We are using the Oculus Quest 2 headset from Meta or Facebook, as some of you used to know them as. All of us used to know them as that. And so everybody who was participating had to have that particular setup uh, in order to play. And Which, which is a, um, a little bit of a barrier, Correct. Yeah, it's definitely a barrier. They're, they're about $300 each. And so that's definitely a barrier. Now, some of the events, and we, we can dive into this a little deeper, some events and some companies are providing those to their employees for free free, quote unquote. Some of them are sending them to attendees as part of the package. In this particular instance, I actually had one of these that uh, my amazing wife, Barrett, gave me as a gift not too long ago. So I was just able to use that one. But you're right, it does create a barrier. But when you think about if you're hosting an event, the cost of, oh, I don't know, flying to the event, paying for your hotel room, cabs or ride shares to and from the airport and the hotel, all of your meals, etc. You're going to rack up a $300 tab very quickly. And so in that sense, I, I can certainly see the argument where it would cost the event organizers much less, even if they just sent everybody their own Quest 2 headset to use. So what I wanted to talk about a little bit is kind of the pros and cons of this experience. And I was really intrigued by this because I do think that we are going to see more and more of this in our lives. And of course, we talked about this ages ago. What would it be like when virtual reality was showing up more in our day-to-day -day lives? And based on some of the interactions that I had, I think that we are closer to that time period than we thought. And so a couple different positives or things I wanted to call out as we kind of dissect it. Uh, overall, it was a really fascinating experience. It was fairly easy to navigate, especially for people that were familiar with the Oculus. So I had used this to play some games and do some exercise programs and Beat Saber and some other fun things like that. So I was you know, fairly familiar with it. But the team that was hosting also did 30-minute orientation sessions in advance of the event to make sure that people were ready to go. And these sessions got great positive feedback from the attendees who had never done it. They were like, oh, I felt like I really knew how to use the tools and get in and play around in the virtual space when we actually showed up for the event. So that was really cool. We also mentioned earlier the expense, right? So the 
all things considered, a $300 investment, while not insubstantial, was certainly less than the expense of attending event in person would have been. The other thing I would say is there were actually fairly minimal logistics. I mean, yes, you had to hook up your system to the internet and put on your VR headset, but compared to flights and hotel stays and all the things you would do navigating from wherever you live to attending an event in person, it was a lot less logistical coordinating. Now, two things that I thought were particularly interesting and relevant were you could have a group meeting where in the rooms we were in, for example, uh, one of our hosts would be speaking. And if your avatar, your character was standing near them, you could hear them very clearly. But as you moved away from them to another corner of the room, for example, their voice got a lot quieter and then went away entirely, the same way it would in a regular room. And you could have a private conversation with somebody without disturbing that conversation. And I would say altogether, it created a really immersive content experience because it felt like you were at a real event, even though this was happening virtually. And the presentation slides were almost appearing as artwork on the walls in the virtual space we were in. There were kind of pamphlets laying around that you could walk up to desk and look at things while the speaker was talking. So it really created a kind of we're in the presentation feel as opposed to we're listening to the presentation. Yeah, I've so I've actually attended an event in VR before as well and, and had this thing of avatars. It, it didn't require the Oculus. It was more a virtual environment on a screen, but it used the audio from your computer or phone so that very similarly, you could walk up to somebody and your two avatars could talk and you could have a private conversation or you could sit around a conference table and have a conversation with a lot of people. And uh, I think this stuff's interesting. My my question becomes, when we're not forced to be virtual, is this still something that people want to do? I think it's... Int- I, I thought it was cool the first time I did it. I'm not entirely sure... I'd like to do every event that way. In fact, I'm pretty sure I don't want to do every event that way. So the thing I've always had with virtual reality is besides from it being cool, I just haven't figured out whether it is entirely practical such that it becomes, as we discussed way back in Ready Player One, you know, our entire world. And I, I still feel like we are way, way, way far from that. Well, I think we are, we're certainly a ways from it becoming our entire world, but I actually think we're closer to it than we think. I don't disagree with you that at this point in the game, I'm not interested in every event I attend happening in virtual reality, but independent of kind of any type of pandemic related restrictions on meeting in person. I don't know about you, Dan, but when we think about a lot of the aspects around the ways events are run, there are a lot of things that could be improved. There's a bunch of downtime. There's a bunch of time that you spend in transit that is kind of coordinating more difficult logistics. And I think in that regard, being able to portal there virtually changes the experience and and makes it a little more efficient use of the time. Now, I don't get me wrong. I would much rather have an in-person human-to-human conversation, but the ability that virtual events, even remote events have allowed me to do. I mean, I know you've done a ton of virtual keynotes over the last few years or remote keynotes is probably a better way to say that where you're doing it over Zoom or Microsoft Teams or something like that. 
you're getting to present in front of audiences that you would never get to go to if it were not for being able to do it this way. Either they wouldn't have the budget or you couldn't make the logistics of the travel work because of other commitments. Whereas jumping into a virtual reality situation allows you to get around that entirely. Now, that being said, the virtual reality experience is not without a couple downsides. Uh, It's definitely a little weird. You know, there aren't any legs on your avatar or the character that you have walking around. So that takes a little getting used to. I knew the majority of the people that were attending this event. It was pretty small. There were about 25 of us, maybe 30. And their characters or their avatars looked kind of like them, but not entirely like them, which was a little bit disconcerting. As a presenter, I will say I was not presenting at this event, but the attendees were doing things like moving chairs around and taking artwork off the walls and things that wouldn't happen in a conference ballroom, you know, at an event in Las Vegas, for example. I wouldn't be worried about, oh, is that audience member going to come up on stage with me or try to jump off the stage or take something off the wall? And yet that's what was happening in the virtual scenario. And I'd say last but not least, it's a little bit disconcerting physically. Like I definitely felt a little nauseous afterwards, but I had been, quote, jacked into this virtual world for about an hour, maybe even more than an hour when we finally logged off. So it definitely was not, it's not 100% there, but it certainly feels like it's getting closer. Yeah, I mean, again, very interesting stuff. I think it's worth exploring you know, when I was saying before about my feelings on virtual reality, where I think we've made more progress is actually in augmented reality. We've talked about this a little bit on the show where, you know, you can um, take a picture of your living room and and see what it looks like with different paint colors on the wall or different carpeting or different rugs or different furniture. Uh, and I think that actually has some, you know, lots of really practical use cases, makes the whole shopping experience a whole lot easier and so I'm just kind of, I'm interested in this, but I'm waiting for when's it going to mean something? When's it going to provide some value besides from just sort of the interesting, oh, this is cool and different? Well, what I, I agree with you, Dan. What I will say is uh, they shared with us a story, which I then went and did a little more research on afterwards. There are companies that are starting to use this for onboarding their new employees and doing training. And in fact, some of the largest companies in the world are making huge investments. Uh, A few months ago, Accenture purchased 60,000 Oculus Quest 2 units. Okay, that's an $18 million investment in order to get their people more interacting with VR. And Julie Sweet, the chief executive officer at Accenture said, quote, why are we supplying virtual reality headsets for training new recruits? Because the way you build connections is also through experiences. And it's super cool. It's a great way to learn about Accenture in a more engaging fashion, but have an experience with people you don't get to be in a room with going through your new joiner training. So they were able to you know, see this as a way to get more connection between all the employees that were using these headsets, as opposed to the few that would attend a specific, you know, new employee onboarding session or that type of thing. So I do think there are companies that are jumping in and experimenting, but I agree with you that we're still in the early days. The moral of the story is, to quote science fiction writer William Gibson and something he said back in 2003, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. That is certainly the case for virtual reality. But at the rate things are accelerating, I think the future is going to arrive and be distributed faster than we think. So here's the question, and here's why I wanted to do a segment on this today. Are you ready to explore virtual reality in your business? 
How could you use VR to enhance your customers' experiences or your employees' experiences? Could you make it more interesting to do business with you, more exciting, more immersive? The possibilities are limitless. So maybe it's time to ask that tween or teen that you know if you can borrow their Oculus, plug in, and start exploring. There are so many great customer experience articles to read, but who has the time? We summarize them and offer clear takeaways you can implement starting tomorrow. Enjoy this segment of CX Press, where we read the articles so you don't need to. Today's CX Press was written by Emily Burak, a staff writer for Town & Country Magazine, and the article is titled, quote, Here's when every new Marvelous Mrs. Maisel episode drops on Amazon Prime. Hey, say Marvelous Mrs. Maisel 10 times <laughs> Yeah, no, no doubt. The article is all about the release schedule for season four of the incredibly popular series that when it debuted, set a record for the most Emmys won by a comedy series in a single year with eight trophies. Then the second season, they won eight more and they won more in their season three. And now we're finally getting to season four. And frankly, if you haven't seen the show, you should check it out. It's fantastic. But that's not the reason I wanted to share the article. To be clear, this isn't a big CX story, but it's a big CX shift. Really, I'm not sure I understand since we're talking about a television show. Well, fair enough, but let me see if I can explain in a little more detail. In recent years, with the advent of streaming technology, more and more consumers have become adept at binge-watching shows. Now, where we used to have to wait an entire week back when Dan and I were little whippersnappers to see a new episode of our favorite show, now we can watch episode after episode after episode in the same setting. In fact, everyone listening has probably noticed that with a service like Netflix or Disney Plus or Amazon Prime, they will start playing the next episode as soon as you finish watching the previous one, presuming that you're going to keep watching. So let the binging continue. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I think that that's clearly very smart, right? That they that there's just sort of it's like the assumptive close in sales. You know, they just assume you want to keep watching, and so you don't have to do anything. It'll just keep playing and playing. And I think that you know makes sense I, for me. There are some shows that I definitely binge. I guess it depends on how much time I have. There are other shows like I'm watching one show right now that I have made my gym show, and so. I only get to watch it when I go to the gym and that's my inspiration to go to the gym so ah, I'm really nice. only watching I'm really only watching one episode at a time but uh definitely the way people have the way people watch TV and and frankly listen to podcasts has really changed over the last uh I don't know 5 10 years uh and so I think you're you're pointing that out makes a lot of sense yeah, absolutely. And what I found interesting about this particular article was the subtitle and I quote, You won't be able to binge watch season four of Maisel when it premieres, but you will be able to watch two new episodes every week. Two new episodes every week. Now that's different. I, I mean, I know that some shows release all their episodes at once and some of them still do it kind of regularly like the networks do once a week. But I don't think I've ever heard of two per week. And neither had I. And that little tidbit of information is what caught my attention and made me want to talk about this on the show. Okay, so what do you think is their reasoning for dropping two episodes a week? Well, here, there was an interesting little aside in the article quoting the Meso creator, Amy Sherman Palladino. And she said, and I quote, our shows are dense, 
a lot happens. It's not a show I would ever recommend like sit down and watch all the shows in one sitting. I just don't think you're going to have the best experience. I think that you're going to miss stuff. Now, I'm guessing that the show creators wanted to slow the release schedule a little bit because the previous seasons were all released at once, so you could binge. But they still wanted to give viewers a taste of being able to watch more than one episode at a time. So every Friday, they drop two episodes for four consecutive Fridays. So the whole season is an eight-episode run, but you're getting it dripped out two at a time as opposed to one at a time, which seems like a little thing, but as a watcher of the show, feels like a different experience for me. Yeah, I get it. And I think it's an interesting experiment. I never quite bought into the drop the whole season all at once thing because I've never been the kind of person that's going to stay up till 3 in the morning and watch all 12 episodes at once. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the reasons we are friends, but not the same people. Because I totally am the person who if I get into the show, uh-oh, it, if I see the sun coming up while I'm watching the last episode, that would maybe be okay. Well, okay, fair enough, fair enough. So I think this is an, it's interesting because it's kind of moving the needle a little bit between the two ends of, of once per week and all at once. And it'll be interesting to see what it does to viewership. I mean, what I like about it is as a marketer, I always like doing A-B testing. And they have enough data from their first three seasons to know what the what the viewership looks like, to when people watch it, how many people are binging versus watching on a regular schedule. And they should be able to compare now this season to those past seasons and have some understanding for other shows on whether this is the kind of schedule that makes sense. You know, Dan, that's so true. I hadn't thought about that before, but... You know, it used to be when shows were released even once a week, the best we had is kind of the Nielsen ratings, you know, where there's a certain number of TV boxes around the country that are kind of tracking what people are watching and that kind of thing. But with the ability to know not only when something's being watched, but how it's being watched, on what device it's being watched, and increasingly with different profiles that you can log into, who in the family is watching it, you're right. They should have the data where they can you know, speak more specifically to their customer behaviors and then guide those accordingly. What I found was really interesting is this balance between the experience of watching or consuming everything all at once, right? Which is, you know, certainly a convenience, versus kind of this less convenient, but maybe more in alignment with the creator's vision of slowing the release schedule. And I think we get into this interesting discussion that any business can have, whether you're in talking about content creation or just any product or service. What do you do when you have an idea of how the customer should kind of indulge themselves with your product or service that is maybe different when the, than what they want to do? I mean, I think back to the days of when I was designing logos. And I would always design the logo in black and white first. And my clients lots of times would be like, no, I want to see it in color. And I'm like, I get it, but you've got to like it in black and white before I'm going to show you color because I don't want your opinions of color to influence the decision on the actual design of the logo. And so I wonder what this tension is, if you will, between what we think we know as the person providing the service or the product versus what the customer wants. Well, and I think one thing also that this affects is the anticipation and discussion around the shows. And you know, that has become such a big part of why these shows 
get popular is that people start talking about them and social media has played a big role. You know, quick story that I haven't mentioned before on the show, but one of my friends in college is named Alan Sepinwall. And Alan in college knew what he wanted to do for a living. He wanted to be a TV critic. And I always thought, wow, that's really interesting. That's a unique desire. Yeah. And Alan, Alan went on to become a, a TV critic first for the New Jersey Star Ledger for years. And he is now a TV critic for a little magazine called Rolling Stone. And Ooh, nice. back in the day when we were in college in the mid-90s, Alan was doing something that didn't have a name. Every time... He and I used to watch NYPD Blue together. We loved that show. And every time we watched an episode, he wrote up a summary of the episode along with his thoughts on it. And at the time, the word blog didn't exist. And online review, there was no such thing. Like, you know, people were like, I had just gotten an email, literally. I know, God, man, that makes me sound old. But he was writing up these reviews for the internal, like the intranet at, at school. And by the way, you can still Google these reviews. And, and, uh, and I, I know my name is in one of them because if you Google my name, at some point you scroll down long enough, you get something about NYPD Blue. And it's Alan's blog from 1994 about watching this. Well, then came shows like my favorite show of all time, Lost, where part of its draw was the explosion of discussion around it and the, and the theories about what was going on and the hypotheses and, the, and all of this stuff. And that was really, I believe, the show that got the kind of online discussion, episode reviews, arguments, debates, you know, all this stuff going... And you fast forward, because that show is still a, a number of years ago, you fast forward to today. And in my opinion, the dropping of all the episodes at once kind of ruins that. Because it, you know, if it drops at midnight and by 5 a.m. I've watched all the episodes, who am I going to talk to about it? Because I'm going to spoil it for everybody. So I can't have that conversation. And or if I'm not the person that does that, I risk getting spoilers by going on to Twitter and seeing somebody talking about Mrs. Maisel and they've watched the whole season already and I haven't even started. So I do think that's part of what's going on here. And there's this balance. You talk about the tension. It's a balance of how do we get people excited about the show, talking about the show, because that gets us more viewers, but not quite so much that it ruins it for the people that aren't going to watch it all at once. Fair enough. No, I, I, it's, it, there's an interesting tension here. And is there a right way? Is there a wrong way? I don't think so. There's just different ways. So I want to ask our listeners a question. Well, before you ask your question, can I ask a question? Yeah, I mean, sure. Go ahead. Is that okay. <laughs> you know, age before beauty. There you um, go. I like that. <laughs> Joey's older. Anyway, uh, my question is Do you, listeners, think that experience this should be released? every Tuesday, which is what we've been doing for nine seasons? Or should we share an entire season all at once? Maybe starting with our next season, season 10. Or hey, maybe twice a week, three times a week, twice a month, every other month. Let us know how you would like to listen to experience this. You can send us an email. My email is dan at dangingas.com. Joey's is joey at joeycoleman.com. And let us know whether you think that we should continue as a weekly series or change it up. And now my question for our listeners, are you allowing your customers to binge your content or do you drip it out over time? Do you think of your interactions as a season or as individual episodes? 
Do the characters and storylines develop over time with you, or are you trying to jam it all in into a nicely packed 60-minute interaction? For what it's worth, I personally don't think there's a right answer. I just think there are different options when it comes to sharing with your customers. And I think all too often, we default to a plan in the beginning, and then we stick with it for no other reason than it's familiar and, quote, the way we've always done it. Maybe we should take a page from the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and try something different next time. Your customers are real people, not numbers in a queue. That's why Help Scout lets you manage conversations, not tickets. Join us now for Conversation Corner. Hey, it's Matt from Help Scout, the customer service platform here again with the question of the week. Today's question, can good customer experience be bad? Uh, what do you think, Joey? Oh, this is a great conversation to have. You know, I do think good CX can have bad results. What comes to mind when I think about this question is a book by my friend Nir Eyal called Hook. The book is all about the psychology and science behind the big social media companies and what they're doing to make you want or even need to keep scrolling, to keep seeking those quick dopamine hits. Now, the reality is that the more that we eliminate friction from our interactions and the more we increase stickiness, the better the overall customer experience. But it can have some negative consequences if it shifts to becoming addictive. When the experience is designed to keep triggering that need for dopamine, it can get a little dangerous. That balance, if you will, between addictiveness and engagement gets a little wonky. So while I'm a huge fan of customer experience, please make sure that you're using your customer experience superpowers for good. 100%. And uh, I read Hooked, and then I noticed that uh, Nier has also written a new book called Indistractable, which is about how to essentially avoid being, <laughs> being hooked. Exactly. <laughs> and that is a pretty evil genius kind of business plan that he's got going there. But the thing that comes to mind for me really is to, to think about the underlying customer experience as being broader than, is it a good immediate experience? Like it could be great. Some of those products and those games, I think of games with microtransactions, they can be really fun and you would call that a great experience. But then if you spend all your spare money on it, you end up spending money you don't have you perhaps waste time that you would have otherwise more helpfully used or for the people in your life. Lots of things which might turn out to be actually not that great. So I think we just need to think about customer experience more broadly as does it align with our values and what do we want for our customers? What do we want for our business? What are we measuring? To make sure that we're measuring not just the immediate success of certain tactics, but the, the overall value that we're delivering to customers uh, in their lives. I love it. You know, customer experience has so many layers and levels. And one of the great things about knowing you, Matt, is that you think about this in a variety of different ways. So to check out some great articles that Matt has written on this topic, to see some other resources that the team at Help Scout has put together to help you think about the various ways you can use your customer experience for good, head on over to helpscout.com slash experience this. That's helpscout.com slash experience this. And learn more about what Help Scout is doing to help design remarkable customer experiences. We spend hours and hours nose deep in books. We believe that everything you read influences the experiences you create. 
So we're happy to answer our favorite question. What are you reading? It's been a while since I have asked you one of my and your favorite questions, Joey. What are you reading? Well, I'm so glad you asked me, Dan. As our loyal listeners know, you and I spend a lot of time reading books about customer experience, but we also like to find great lessons for customer experience professionals in books that aren't specifically about CX, but certainly have CX applicability. And that's definitely the case with a book I'm reading that just came out today. It's by a lovely friend of mine and fellow entrepreneur, Jenny Blake. Now, you may know her from her previous book, Pivot, The Only Move That Matters Is Your Next One. But her newest book is called Free Time, Lose the Busy Work, Love Your Business. And I loved this book. Well, the promise of the title certainly has me interested because, you know, free time is one of those things that is so precious. And busy work is one of those things that can be uh, so conflicting with free time. So I'm, uh, I'm interested. Tell me more. Well, that's exactly what I thought when I first heard about this book. And now that I've had a chance to read it, I can report back that the book lives up to the promise in the title. And I'll certainly share some of my key takeaways from free time. But before I do, I asked Jenny to give us an overview of the book. Here's Jenny Blake explaining free time. Hello, hello, experienced this listeners. I'm honored to be here. My passion is helping all of us free our mind, time, and teams to do more of our best work. And of course, be truly present in the time that we do have off. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, only 40% of small businesses are profitable. Of the remaining 60%, half are breaking even and half are losing money. 19% of small business owners work over 60 hours a week, and 89% report working on weekends. If this describes you, you are not alone. We've all been navigating such tumultuous times these last few years, and many of us are beset by what I call the burdensome bees. We're bottlenecked, bored, burnt out, or buried by bureaucracy. But it doesn't have to be this way. Free time is part manifesto, part love letter to business owners, and part brass tacks, systems, and operating principles to help you move from friction to flow. That diagnostic, that simple inquiry is at the heart of this book. Where are you in friction in your business and where are you in flow? Wherever you're encountering excessive friction, you can apply the free time framework. Three stages, align, design, assign, to work through a process to free up your mind, your time, and your team. One of my guiding inquiries that I've had in my own business for the last 10 years is this ongoing question of how can we earn twice as much in half the time with joy and ease while serving the highest good? Free time is a philosophy and it's a verb. This is an ongoing practice. Time is not money. Time is life force. How do you want to spend it? Free our mind, time, and teams and earn twice as much in half the time with joy and ease while serving the highest good? (laughs) Wow. Uh, Count me in. That sounds great. I I mean, listen, it's tough being a small business owner. You know, there are many days where I have to remind myself that it's me, myself, and I. And if I'm not doing it, then nobody is. And if that means I'm distracted doing busy work or doing something that's not really moving the ball forward, then that means it's not getting done at all. And uh, you know, sometimes having been in corporate America for a long time, I know 
you know, you can kind of have days in corporate America where you're more productive or less productive, and it doesn't really matter. But when, especially when you're a solopreneur, every day matters. Every day, it, it's, you know, the more focused we can be, the more progress we make, the more success we have. And I see it. I, I know which days I'm productive and which days I'm not. And, and I would love to have more productive days. Well, I agree with you, Dan, but here's the thing. I think this applies to everyone these days. And I and I know you do too. I mean, it's not just, you know, if you're a small business owner listening, yes, this applies to you. But I would posit that everyone is dealing with busy work. Everyone is dealing with systems that are not working as well as they could. And everyone's kind of trying to figure out, well, how can I maximize my efficiency and uh, navigate my work scenario better? What I found particularly interesting about this book were the techniques that Jenny outlines and how clearly they could be applied not only to our business operations, but to our customer interactions as well. A few that really stood out to me include the chapter titled Systematize the Spirit of Your Business, which talks all about avoiding unforced errors in your operations by paying close attention to onboarding activities and the feelings your customers have. I also love the chapter Answer Less, Every Question Lives Three Lives. Now, that is one that I was immediately able to act on and am already seeing some results in my own business. Wait a second. Answer Less... Every question lives three lives. I'm going to need you to explain that one to me. Yeah. So the chapter opens with the observation that, quote, disorganized documentation around common questions in your business triples the work and the frustration for your team and your customers. And then it goes on to outline a three-step process. Step one, the first time a question is asked, it gets answered via email or in a conversation or in some type of project correspondence. Now, that's where most businesses stop. And that's the problem. They need to continue on to the next two steps. Step two, the person who answered the question documents that answer internally. So no one ever needs to figure out that answer again or even type that answer. And by documenting the question and the response, the exchange no longer lives only in one person's mind or email. It becomes part of the organizational brain. And finally, step three, they add that question and answer to a public-facing resource. This reduces the need for other customers to ask the same question. Now, this could happen on a website or an enrollment page. It could include editing confusing copy or even creating an entirely new downloadable resource. The point is to get the question and the answer out into the wild. You know, Joy, this reminds me of the great philosopher Marcus Sheridan, <laughs> our friend. Yes. Uh, who, who wrote the book, They Ask, You Answer, which, fun fact, listeners and Joey, was the very first book report that we did on this here show, Experience This, back in episode four. Very true. This is turning into the callbacks episodes from season one. What I love about Jenny's process, and I totally agree with you that it's very similar to Marcus's, but she offers what I thought was a really interesting way to systematize this behavior for the they ask you answer, right? And speaking of questions and answers and sharing those more publicly and in a more systemized fashion, I asked Jenny to share her favorite passage from the book. And here's what she had to say. There's a saying that overwhelm is the abundance you've been asking for. Are you ready for your big break? Or would your business break? Would you gleefully ride the wave you've been preparing for? Or would your business systems collapse under the crush of surging interest? One thought exercise I encourage my team to ask regularly is, are we Oprah or Tim Ferriss ready? 
Or hey, experience this ready. This is less about magical thinking, waiting for a lottery ticket success shortcut, but rather encouraging an ongoing systems audit by imagining interviews with hosts I admire. Would my team and I be ready to catch the wave of incoming interest and leads that either of their two podcasts would generate without our systems crashing? If you scale with sloppy systems, your problems will only multiply. Hence the adage from Bill Hewlett, co-founder of Hewlett Packard, that more companies die of indigestion than starvation. One of Tim Ferriss's readers labeled this the hug of death, resulting from outsized traffic due to products he recommends. If the small companies don't see it coming, they sometimes run out of inventory, servers crash, or they experience other flubs. These are the last problems a company wants to face when meeting outsized incoming demand. Make it easy and inviting for big, the biggest, opportunities to come to you. Be ready before the wave, not scrambling or fumbling after the fact. Think through surges in advance, step by micro step. Imagine you're running an emergency preparedness drill with your team. Does every person know what to do if and when a big interest wave hits? I love it. Prepare your systems now for when things get even better. Great advice. Well, Jenny's passage certainly gave us food for thought, but I have a feeling that Joey Coleman has a favorite passage as well. Sir? I did, Dan, but I got to admit it was hard to pick just one. I will say that one of my favorite passages was a small idea that I thought could have huge impact. And it can be found in the final chapter of the book, which is called Save Someone Next Steps. Here's the excerpt. Get in the habit of looking beyond the initial details of the request. Run through a quick check before making something complete by anticipating what the person will need to do next. How can you save someone the next few steps, even unanticipated ones? Is the task or project truly complete or are follow-up details left unbuttoned? Every task includes strategic thinking about how to automate or systematize follow-up steps to save everyone time in the future. Every day, I'm delighted by the simplest of innovations, a small metal key that fits the width of the toothpaste container it came with. The bar, only three quarters closed, slides across the bottom end of the mint green tube. A small tab handle allows me to rotate the bar and therefore at the end of the tube just a tiny bit, neatly pressing the toothpaste ever so slightly up each time I use it. No more wringing or folding or rolling or disorderly squeezing clean, simple, time-saving, and joyful. Now, the company behind it, David's USA, has a similarly streamlined website. Their tagline, Natural Toothpaste Elevated. They list core values, including naturally sourced and fluoride-free, but their care for their customers is most evident in the free key sent with every tube. Imagine how much time and mess, no matter how small, they have saved across all those tubes in all their customers' households. Every tiny interaction is part of a larger whole. Save someone even the smallest next steps and they will thank you for it. You know, this reminds me of uh, a report out of the Harvard Business Review that said that the number one contributor to customer loyalty is the reduction of, of work, basically making things simple for people. And uh, so that's what I like about this example. Now, if I'm being honest... 
I think that's solving a problem I don't have. But I know other people do have it. You know, I watch my kids squeeze toothpaste and they could definitely <laughs> use that darn thing, right? And so uh, I like it, but I also like I like any idea that makes things simpler and eliminates barriers for customers. I love it. Simple is so good. And that was the whole piece that why I love that passage. It's that next step. You know that you're going to use the toothpaste. The customer you've sold the toothpaste is going to actually be squeezing the tube. What can you do to help them with the next step? Friends, here's a simple next step. It's a little book filled with big ideas that are going to spark all sorts of customer experience ideas for your business. So since we're at the end of the episode, here's the next step. Before you move on to your next podcast or your next episode or your next task for the day, take a minute to jump online at your favorite bookstore and add free time. Lose the busy work, love your business by Jenny Blake to your shopping cart and then buy it. It can help you eliminate the repetitive aspects of your life and reconnect with your business in entirely new ways. Thanks for writing another great book, Jenny, and for all your customer experience inspiration. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Experience This. You're the best listener ever. And since you listened to the whole show, yay, you were curious. Was there a specific part of this episode that you enjoyed the most? If so, it would mean the world to us if you could share it with a coworker, a friend, or someone that just loves listening to podcasts. And while you're in the sharing mood, if you felt inclined to jump over to iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts and write us a review, we would so appreciate it. And when you do, don't forget to let us know as we might have a little surprise for you. Thanks again for your time and we'll see you next week for more Experience. Yes.